Grounding is so important in your ultimate investment outcomes, like so, so important. And if you can grow at 30% for 10, 12 years, and and your valuations are you know reasonable when you get in, I, I think that's how you that's how you make the most money. And so growth is very, very important. And and the other thing about the you know value and value valuation is look, we Amazon lost money for decades, right? And you can say, oh, the P is 900 or it's 170 or whatever it is, but businesses aren't approaching the world that way anymore, right? It's okay to lose money. It's okay to not make a profit if you're going to grow. Now, ultimately, what gives companies value is earnings. And so ultimately, you do need the E to come out. But if you want to sacrifice short-term E for long-term you know, earnings, that's, that's become a much more acceptable business model. And so traditional valuation frameworks, I think, are challenged to, to deal with that. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I are joined by Kevin Carter, whose investment expertise is in emerging and frontier markets. Kevin and his firm are behind one of the top performing emerging market ETFs, EMQQ, which is focused on investing in internet and e-commerce companies in emerging markets. We talked to Kevin about the opportunity in emerging markets, about the mega trends he sees, how he constructs the ETF, and even how he came up with the idea in the first place, and the important milestones on the way to managing over $1 billion. Thanks for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with EMQQ's Kevin Carter. Kevin, hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, in our research for the interview, we learned kind of a re really interesting fact, and that is, um, at least this is what we, we read, that you give all your employees that have been with you for one year um, a Tesla, um, which is really awesome, actually. So just, I don't know, we just wanted to start there. Just can you talk about your, your, your personal experience with Tesla and actually why you decided to do that for your people? Okay, well, uh, the reason that I decided to do that, it was part of our ESG uh, statement and just sort of how we're approaching, you know, the whole idea of, of ESG. And it, and I prefer not to go too deep into the ESG world, but I, I think that the system by which ESG is being implemented is totally broken and doesn't really achieve what people are trying to achieve. I mean, we're all for the goals of the environment and social causes and gender uh, issues. But but the way that the you know, the investment world, large parts of it are being pushed to implement ESG. But in order to do it at scale, it has to become quantitative. And so you have these black boxes that are, you know, determining what your uh, scores are. And, you know, I I question strongly whether those scores are mapping over to the real world, you know, ESG uh, issues. Um, but moreover, we're not really, 
in control of the companies in our portfolio. I mean, we invest in every internet company in the emerging and frontier markets, but we don't control them. But we do control ourselves and how we as a business uh, operate. And so we've done a number of things as part of our e uh, EMQQ Evolves program. And one of those was to uh, make sure all of our people have an electric vehicle. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of Tesla and I owned the stock a long time ago and I made a lot of money in it, but I wish I still owned it. Um, so, so anyway, I've, I've been following Tesla very closely and I think that the reality is that none of the advances that have made in electric vehicles would not have happened had it not been for Tesla. So, I, you know, the, everyone else is now getting on the wagon, but it would not, it very clearly to me would not have happened if it wasn't for Tesla. So we're, we're loyal to them as uh, the pioneer in EV, uh, you know, electric vehicles. No, that's that's really cool. And that, one of the things uh, that I also saw on your website, and you just mentioned this, this EMQQ evolves sort of annual giving program where I think what you guys are doing is, you know, taking nominations of companies that are, are, are really doing good, you know, things, whether it be socially or for the environment and actually, um, you know, putting your money where your mouth is. So to your point about, you know, doing things that you have control over. You're not only doing it with the Tesla, but you're doing it with this annual giving program and other aspects of the business. That's exactly it. I mean, we're, 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 we, we're making ourselves, you know, as, as uh, uh, active as we can be in, you know, all uh, of the associated ESG uh, concerns. With, it, with an emphasis, I think, um, uh, to a certain extent on financial education and, and, and women in asset management and, and uh, you know, advancing uh, those things. One of the things I want to ask you about is direct indexing. So um, direct indexing is sort of becoming a much more popular um, area right now in the investment management space. And um, you kind of had this idea long before it became popular. So just can you talk a little bit about the concept and what you think its potential is going forward? Well, you know, when we invented it, we called it active indexing. So I don't, I don't like to call it direct indexing. That's a rebranding of, of what we call active indexing. And, and our, the business that we started is still operating. It's called Active Index Advisors. But direct indexing um, uh, is something that... Um, Myself and a few other people saw as as sort of the future, you know, 20 years ago, and and the idea was, you know, that you know, it, the indexing makes sense, but there's also advantages to having a separate account because then if you own the stocks directly, uh, you can customize and and you know do ESG things, um, screen out guns or tobacco. And that's one of the other problems with ESG is, you know, everybody doesn't have the same value. So making a, 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 an ETF that is supposed to capture, you know, ESG elements, it's a one size fits all approach. And so indexing in a separate account made sense for those reasons, although ESG wasn't what we called it back then. And perhaps more importantly for investors, uh, taxable investors, there was an opportunity to, to beat the index on an after-tax basis through just a you know um, systematic loss harvesting. So if 
you know, you own General Motors as part of your index-based separate account and the autos went down, you could sell it and buy Ford and then hope to get the same beta as the market, but but beat it on an after-tax basis. And that was the the concept when we launched it and it's worked quite well. I mean, I'd shockingly, when you look at the numbers and the track record's now almost 20 years, it's beaten the index, not by a little, but by a lot, like uh, I think about 3% a year over that 20 year period after taxes and fees. So, so anyhow, it's a, it's, it's a great idea. It's hard to scale it, you know, through the advisor distribution, you know, model. ETFs scale a lot easier, but I think it's got a lot. I, I think it should be part of a lot of investors' portfolios. I mean, if you've got taxable money sitting in the S&P 500 ETFs or any you know U.S. equity ETF, you're leaving money on the table. Um, uh, so, so I think it it's good for investors, but it's the, I guess the other thing that's hard to, is to show people their after-tax returns. It doesn't show up on the statement. Um, uh, it happens at tax time. And, and the other advance that I think that, that can and should be done, and I'm sure people are working on this, and I would if I had more time, um, but it's easy to express in a portfolio the things you don't want to invest in. It's a lot harder to affirmatively uh, express things you want or believe in, right? It's hard to uh, implement the uh, direct indexing in a way that not only lets you remove things, but also lets you make sure you include things that for whatever, for whatever reason you want, you can. Was it the active indexing slash direct indexing business where you and Burton Malkiel first started working together? Is that how that connection formed? No, um, uh, Burton and I started that company together in 2002. We first met in 1998 when I was a young, cocky value investor and I was shorting Amazon.com in the spring of 1998. And I lost about a third of my money in a day and a half. And the same day though that that happened, I saw a company change its name from KTEL to KTEL.com. And when I had my first interview after college, um, uh, the interview was about 20 minutes long and all we talked about was college basketball. And then the guy said, okay, you can start Monday. And I said, well, how, how can I possibly start Monday? I don't know anything about investing. And he said, well, go buy this book. And he wrote down a random walk down Wall Street. So I had read it in January of 1992 when I started in the investment business and then in 1998, when I was shorting Amazon, I saw a company change its name from KTEL to KTEL.com. And the stock went from a dollar to 30 in one day. And I said, oh my gosh, I've read about this. And I went up to my bookshelf and I found my copy of A Random Walk. And I found the chapter on valuations and bubbles. And there was a quote in that chapter from Jack Dreyfus, the founder of Dreyfus Funds. And it was about the 1960s electronics bubble. So before I was born, there was a bubble in electronics and silicon uh, companies. And, and the quote from Jack Dreyfus was, take a company called Shoelaces Incorporated, change the name to Silicon and Electronic Firth Burners. The, the, the stock had a PE of eight, but you add the word Silicon and you can double the PE to 16. 
you add electronics, you can double the PE to 32. And then you can add the word Firth burners, which we made up, and the whole thing gets doubled again to 64. And I said, oh my gosh, this just happened. This company changed its name from KTEL to KTEL.com, and it went from a dollar to 30. And I said, I have to call this guy. And so I used the search engine of the day, which was ink to me. And I put in his name, Bert Malkiel, and up came his Princeton bio and his class schedule and his office hours. And I and his phone number, and I picked up the phone and dialed it, and he answered it. And I told him what I had observed, and he asked me to fax him a, a, a printout of a Bloomberg story on the situation, and I did that. And that was how I met him. And then a year later, I had taken sort of a year off to think about the investment business and you know what I thought were lots of problems with it, and in particular with the traditional mutual fund. Uh, industry and how it had sort of a stranglehold on lots of uh, investors' money. And I concluded first and foremost that we had to create a fractional share brokerage platform. So we had to allow people to invest the amount of money they had, $300 a month, $200 a month, $500 a month. We needed to make a way for them to invest $300 a month into stocks without that mutual fund wrapper and all the fees associated with it. And so I had this idea and people kept saying, you need to do that. You need to do that. And finally, I decided I ought to do it. And I started a company called the Electronic Investing Corporation or e-investing. And um, that was in 1999. And, you know, I was a young entrepreneur without a lot of credibility and you know what you did when you were that kind of a person is you had an advisory board of people that did have credibility so you would look credible and i thought well i talked to this guy on the phone i know he's a champion of the you know investor and i i called him back and said hey bert i don't know if you remember me but we spoke on the phone last year he said of course i remember i don't believe him he's just a very nice person but um I said, this is what I want to do. I think it's good for investors. And he said, I think that's a great idea, but I want to meet you in person before I'll agree to be on your advisory board. So I got on a plane to Princeton a few weeks later and we had a three hour lunch and we've been business partners ever since. So started with fractional shares. Then that led, uh, we sold that company to E-Trade to e in the July of 2000. And then uh, about a year later, we started Active Index Advisors. You were way ahead of your time in the fractional share thing, um, given that, you know, a lot of these brokers just over the last like maybe a year or two really implemented it. Uh, apparently, I was 20 years uh, early. We used to always say, you know, because it was a pretty complex thing to, to, to do uh, back then. And... We actually had to set up an omnibus clearing broker dealer, which meant we were a broker dealer that we weren't self clearing, but we kept our own books and records, which hadn't been done in like 20 years. And the, the Pershing people said, well, no one's done this in a long time, but you'd have to, you'd have to do it on an AS 400 mainframe. And all of our tech guys were like, oh no, that was old tech back then. And I remember they said, oh, we got to find, there was this one developer they knew who had retired, who was the only one they knew that, that knew how to program on, on that particular type of server. But we used to back then say, wouldn't it be great if we could just put this on a disc and sell it to Schwab? 
but you couldn't. You had to actually build all of the pipes in the back, and, and that was the challenge. And so, anyhow, it's, it's, it's fun to see now that Schwab has it and everyone has it, and, and it's, I hope it's being used properly. It's not clear it is, right? Because the real goal here was if you just strip back investing and, and you know, if you, if with everything we know about investing and, and math, there's, you know, really one, it's a pretty simple thing what you're supposed to do. You got to start investing when you're young and as often as you can, you want to just be buying and holding and buying and holding and buying and holding. And first you need that, that tool to buy, which is that fractional share. Uh, and then the question is, what do you buy? Right. And then, you know, then you know, I'm a Warren Buffett person first. So I'm, I'm not afraid of, of stock picking at all. It's my great love and I think my best skill, but, but, or you index or any other thing in the middle. But I think there's two right ways. You, you either go with a Vanguard by S&P 500, you know, index it, or you do the Omaha thing. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in the middle but I think there's really two right ways. And, um, you know, whether that's direct indexing, uh, which squeezes even more out of the indexing approach or, you know, trying to identify um, great businesses at good prices and hold them. You alluded this to, a little, uh, to this a little bit already with the, talking about uh, Malkiel and his support of indexing. But I I'm wondering, you know, on one hand, you've had a lot of exposure to him, and he's well known for his belief in the efficient market hypothesis and indexing. And on the other hand, you have run active strategies, and you've sort of talked about, you know, both ends of that spectrum. I'm wondering, what do you think about the idea that the markets are efficient? Well, I, I think they should be efficient. There's lots of Harvard MBAs uh, out there with Bloomberg machines and data. And so... You think that they would be somewhat efficient, um, but I think that um, I think that there's, particularly in the world of indexing, there's just so many things that are I think sort of easy to fix to improve. That you know I think there are elements that are built into the system that aren't efficient, right? Like I mean, in, in emerging markets where I've ended up focused for the last 16 years have some serious and very clear inefficiencies in terms of how people are investing in emerging markets. The traditional broad indexes, the, the ETFs from iShares and Vanguard, these are terrible ways to get exposure to emerging markets. And yet that lots of people have lots of money invested in them. And it, you know, I, and the, the problem with the traditional indexes is a state ownership. I mean, you've got about a third of the big indexes, government-owned banks and oil companies, which are horrible for investors, and they're inefficient, and the corruption's rampant, and they represent a full third of the traditional indexes. And that's why people look at the, you know, the broad emerging market indexes and say, well, gee, I haven't made any money in 14 years. Well... If you knew what the Agricultural Bank of China was, you probably shouldn't be surprised. So, but yet I see, you know, Ray Dalio, who, you know, I think is one of our best people, at least in terms of thinking about China, and five of his top 20 holdings are these horrible emerging market index products. So you might have the idea, right, that emerging markets are the place to find growth. But if you look under the hood at the holdings of that fund and think about what you own, you're not going to get that growth. You're, you're, you're going to be 
disappointed. And I think ultimately emerging markets are the biggest value trap in the world because people look at it and they say, well, look at the PE. It's, it's half the S&P 500's PE and the economic growth is twice as fast. How can that not be a bargain? Well, that's the biggest value trap in the world. So, so yeah, to me, that's the kind of inefficiency that I'm working on solving is that, and it's a big problem. People just, they just look at the title. Like the, you know, the, the China ETFs are even worse. I mean, when I got involved with China, the, the iShares China ETF, which was the only ETF, was about 80% state-owned enterprises. And, even, and only, you know, about 7 or 8% uh, consumer stocks, which is what you really want in emerging and frontier markets. We're going to dig a lot more into emerging markets, but before we do, I want to sort of take a step back and, and set the stage for it by talking about emerging markets in general. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about what emerging markets are in terms of how big they are, how much are they of total market cap, of total GDP, the percentage of population in the world. Like how big are emerging markets in, in the context of the world portfolio? Well, they are the world, basically. I mean, in terms of population, Emerging markets are 85. And when I say emerging markets, I'm talking about emerging and frontier markets. There is no official definition, by the way, of what an emerging market is. I mean, MSCI is sort of the unofficial, uh, you know, decider. Um, but um, it's about 80, 85% of the world's people. It's even more of the future as measured by young people. 90% of people under the age of 30. 90% uh, of the young people are in emerging and frontier markets. And in terms of GDP, they're now more than half of global GDP. Their economies have been growing uh, approximately twice as fast over the last 20 years on average. And in terms of stock market capitalization, they're about 25%, I think, of the total uh, uh, all-world indexes. And population-wise, the way to think about emerging markets, you know, within the, the category, it's about 60% Asia um, in terms of GDP, in terms of population, in terms of market cap, all of those. It's approximately 60% Asia led by China. It's about 20% of the emerging Americas, Central and South America, Brazil and Mexico being the largest part. And then it's about 10%. Uh, in Eastern Europe and 10% in the Middle East and Africa. So that's that's how it looks like within emerging markets. But but it really is it really is the world in terms of people. 85% of the world's people today, and even more of the people uh, going forward. This is probably an overly simplistic way to look at it, but it would seem with it being such a large portion of the population and a and a pretty large portion of GDP and a small portion of market cap that might provide an opportunity for long-term investors. I mean, is that, is that a fair way to look at it? Well, it, I, yes. With the very important caveat that the indexes, again, are full of legacy assets. And so the state-owned oil companies, the government-controlled banks, the commodities. And it's not just the SOEs, which are about a third of the index. You've also got in there the Chable, the Russian oligarchs. Um, and if you added the, the Korean Chable, which have a lot of pro the same problems, including people going to jail, like the chairman of Samsung, who I believe went to jail last night for the third time in five years. Um, uh, you have people going to jail and people stealing your money. And, and the oligarchs and Chable, if you added those to the official state-owned enterprise, it's, a, it's about half the index. So... You know, it, it, 
there's opportunity for growth for sure. There is growth, but it's this gets back to that sort of inefficiency. I don't think the indexes are, are going to capture it. The traditional broad indexes are not going to capture the growth very well, in my opinion, as they haven't, you know, because emerging markets had a ton of growth in the last 14 years, but the 14-year return of the MSCI index is essentially zero. One of the things a lot of U.S. investors, myself included, to, to be honest, do is they, they tend to overweight the U.S., maybe have 100% of their assets in the U.S. or the vast majority of their assets in the U.S., and I, I was wondering how you think about the idea of, of what the opportunity is in emerging markets. And obviously, from what you said, you, you don't think the opportunity is in the indexes in emerging markets. But how should someone like me, who has the vast majority of their money in the U.S., think about the opportunity to expand my portfolio more to emerging markets? Well, you know, I've seen 100 people ask Burton, how much should I invest in emerging markets? And he only has one answer, and that's more. That's the answer he's given every time someone has asked him that, at least when I've been present. And I, I agree with his answer, but with an important asterisk, which is if that means bu buying the iShares or the Vanguard traditional broad funds, I wouldn't put any in. Um, but uh, the, so I, and I guess very importantly in discussions about asset allocation and so forth, I'm obviously in a biased position. I mean, I'm a proprietor of an emerging and frontier market, uh, you know, uh, ETF. Um, but I've also become pretty radicalized in the last couple of years in terms of how I think about asset allocation. And I'm basically rejecting modern portfolio theory. Um, and... And a lot of that came from just my real world experience. And, and, you know, we have a 401k plan for our business. And when we set it up, I said, uh, okay, we'll make sure the default funds are all Vanguard, right? That's, that's always, I think, the right answer for your 401k plan. And, and then they switched the default funds to Fidelity at one point. They sent me a notification and it, it made me nauseous that the Fidelity lifecycle funds were going to be the default option in, in the 401k plan we had. And, and I started, you know, because I have a young, uh, you know, my employees, my partners are, are relatively young. And I think back then the average age was under 30. And I just started thinking like, why does, you know, if you're 27 years old and you've got a 35 year time frame for your 401k, why do you need anything in U.S. mid-cap stocks or international bonds? Like, right, why wouldn't you put it all in the things that are growing and going to continue to grow? And if I could go back 30 years and, and restart my retirement investing, I know I would do it a lot differently than I, than I did. And, and I think I wouldn't use a pie chart like that. I'd get very focused on where the growth is. And I think that it's in the emerging markets, internet space. And do you, this sort of gets at my next question, but you know, we've sort of talked about the overall, like people are under allocating to emerging markets, but do you think there's sort of a unique opportunity right now? Again, putting aside the indexes where people, you know, may not want to be invested. Do you think there's a unique opportunity in terms of the types of companies that are available in emerging markets right now? I think there's incredible opportunity. And, you know, again, our focus is on the internet and, and e-commerce, and that's all we invest in. And what's shaping up in emerging markets, especially beyond China, because China's got the biggest e-commerce market in the world by far now, but what's happening in India, 
in Vietnam, in Indonesia, in Brazil, Mexico, Africa. There has been unicorns funded in the past week in Bangladesh, in Pakistan. We have a Kazakhstan uh, super app that's now publicly traded in London. There's a huge opportunity, and it's really not much of a secret. I mean, if you just look at the U.S. market, like what, what's happened in the last 10 years and 15 years in the U.S. stock market? The FANG stocks have taken over. They've taken over our lives. They've taken over the stock market for good reason. The fundamentals. That's where the growth has been. And, but this is, you know, the, that same story that we've seen play out in our lives is starting to play out in the real world, like in India and in Africa. And, and what makes the story so exciting there is that these billions of people are getting their first ever computer. Like I had a computer 30 years ago. Well, the, the computer is coming to the world right now. Well, I guess every second or every three seconds that we're on this call, somebody in India is going to get their first ever computer and their first ever internet access. Things that we take for granted. And because these people don't have bank accounts, they don't have cable television, and there's no Target store to go to even if they had a car, they're leapfrogging and are even more digital than we are. And that's a story that I think is in the top of the first inning as the billions of people in the developing world come online for the first time. Is, is that when you kind of put your stake in the ground on focusing on emerging market internet and e-commerce stocks, I mean, what was the, was it that you saw that trend? You, you were looking at these international markets and saying, you know, I think that's where the growth is going to be. Like, how did you, because I mean, you basically have built, a, a, you know, a billion dollar investment management firm on that initial strategy, um, which maybe five years ago, it wasn't as clear that that was going to be, um, that the, 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 to some people, maybe it wasn't as clear that that's where the sort of growth and the opportunity was. So just talk about the, how that for, that formation, how that idea came to you. Um, what was the initial genesis of it? Well, I mean, I, I guess you sort of step back to my, my 16 years, you know, the beginning of my 16 years focused on China and, and emerging markets. And, you know, what you learned pretty early, in fact, the, basically the first day that I was on the scene of trying to figure out China, you learned that the state-owned enterprises dominate the index and they're not really real companies. And then the second thing you learn is that the thing that's emerging are the people. You get billions of people moving on up and they want stuff. They want more and better food, more and better clothing, appliances, vacations, cars, and they want their kids to go to Harvard. And that is what emerge, emerging markets are all about. The people are emerging. And I didn't have to figure that out. It was very well documented before I got involved. And McKinsey and company calls it the biggest growth opportunity in the history of capitalism, which is a pretty hyperbolic statement. And maybe they're wrong and it's the second biggest opportunity in the history of capitalism, but it's a big deal. And again, it's, it's something we take for granted. I mean, but basically what EMQQ is, is a combination of three mega trends, all of which were part of, but we were the first people. So we don't even think about them anymore. They're just part of our lives. Well, the, and the first of those megatrends is the consumer. 
right? We've had a consumer economy for, for generations now. Well, most of the world is just now getting disposable income to buy a second pair of shoes or a McDonald's hamburger, whatever it is. And so that is what I've been trying to capture for 16 years, right? And in trying to push down the the legacy economy and the state-owned businesses that are dominating the index and and increase and refine the exposure to the consumer. And ultimately what I de decided the best way to invest in emerging markets was, was simple. It was to buy the emerging market consumer ETF, which I had nothing to do with. I didn't make that fund. I was busy with uh, working with Guggenheim and launching a number of China ETFs in my first eight years on the scene. But when the emerging market consumer ETF launched, I noticed it and I quickly printed off a list of the holdings and I printed up every annual report and went through them because I wanted to see what the 30 largest emerging market consumer companies were to you know, invest in this, in this theme. I knew the China ones, but I didn't know what else was in there. And, and so that's what I would tell people to do, just buy the emerging market consumer ETF, right? The 30 largest emerging market consumer stock. And about seven and a half years ago, eight years ago, you know, Burton and I had launched some China ETFs with Guggenheim and I woke up one morning and I thought, what have I done with my life? I was this young, cocky stock picker, Charlie Munger wannabe. And then I got mixed up with this Princeton guy who's on the board of Vanguard. And now I'm building Chinese index funds for a living. And oh my gosh, what have I done? I need to get back to my roots and do what I love doing. And so I told the Guggenheim people I would continue to you know, do talks for them and whatnot, but I was gonna do my own thing. And I set up an investment partnership. I modeled it after the original Buffett partnership, no management fee, but I got 25% of the profits. And once I had it set up and had my own money invested in it, I thought I should go see if any of my friends want to invest in this partnership with me. And so I scheduled some meetings and the morning of those meetings, I made some slides to show the people I was going to meet with. And one of the slides was a list of the five companies I invested in and all of which were part of the emerging market consumer story. The first three of those five companies were in the emerging market consumer ETF. They were Want Want, which is like the Nabisco of China, branded crackers and snack foods, stock trades in Hong Kong. And then I owned two Chinese sportswear companies, Li Ning and Peak Sports, which are sort of the Reebok and Converse of China. So those were the first three stocks, food, clothing, traditional consumer stocks. But then I had two other stocks that were clearly part of the emerging market consumer story, but they were not in the emerging market consumer ETF because the database didn't say they were consumer stocks. The database said they were technology companies. The first one, the Craigslist of China, Wuba, traded on the New York Stock Exchange, which has since gone private. And then the fifth and final company traded on the NASDAQ was Mercado Libre, M-E-L-I which is the Amazon.com and the PayPal of Brazil and Mexico and every place else down there. And after I made the slide, I looked at it and I thought, huh, these are all emerging market consumer investments. The three that are called emerging market consumer companies are great. They're growing at 15 or 20%. I think they all have a moat in form of brand equity. 
But then I looked at the two internet companies that were not in the emerging market consumer ETF, and they were growing at 100%, seven times as fast as the traditional consumer companies. And they had amazing margins. Wuba had a 94% gross margin, which is where I look for moats. And I've still never seen a company other than Wuba with a 94% gross margin, which I think is why the management decided to go private. And, and while the PEs were higher, the peg ratios were not. The peg ratios were actually quite reasonable. And I just remember thinking my two best emerging market consumer investments are not even in the ETF I tell people to buy. And that was it. I, I had that thought and I went around town and had my meetings and I got some checks and I was on my way home and I was at a stoplight and my phone rang and it was a friend of mine with a three-year-old daughter and she said, what's the best emerging markets ETF for my daughter's college fund? And I started to tell her that she should buy econ, but then I had a light bulb appear above my head and I said, wait a minute, the best one doesn't exist. And I went straight back to my office and started to organize EMQQ that afternoon. And it launched 100 days later on November 12, 2014. So that's how it happened. Wow. From a presentation to a phone call to $1.3 billion. Pretty cool. <laughs> it worked pretty good. And, and But let me, let me just further add on to your question. I mean, I, I could see the growth rates, right? And I could see the valuations, which, you know, I could see people would shy away from the PE if they didn't look at the G. Um, but what I didn't appreciate was what was driving it. And, and basically what EMQQ is, is three different mega trends captured in, in one thing. And again, there are three things that we take for granted, the consumer, uh, the rise of the emerging market consumer. That's the foundation of this whole thing. The second is the computer, which again, I've had for 30 years, but most of the world is just now getting, and it's not on their desk and it's not running on Apple. Uh, it's a $60 Android based smartphone made in China. And, and it's giving people the internet, which I've had for 25 years first, you know, over a telephone line in the Marina district of San Francisco. So it's, it's those three mega trends. Everybody else wants the same stuff we've got. They're getting their first computer. They're getting their first internet access. And again, because they don't have a bank account and a debit card and they, there's no target store, they're leapfrogging and are in many ways even more digital than us, which is sort of the paradox. Like I, you know, I'm a fintech entrepreneur on, in San Francisco. I should be on the cutting edge of things like fintech, but it's not me. It's actually Africa that has the most robust mobile payments market. Can you just flush out a little bit more the type of metrics and specific things that you look at? It sounds like growth rates, the peg ratio, you know, margins are important, but I mean, what else goes into your specific stock selection process that our listeners um, can sort of learn from as they look at these types of emerging market companies? Well, let me just make sure I'm clear. The EMQQ and FMQQ, which is our new uh, offering, um, these are rules-based index uh, strategies. So uh, EMQQ owns every publicly traded emerging or frontier market uh, internet or e-commerce company that meets our minimums for market cap and liquidity. Um, today, there's 118 of those uh, companies. 
and and then it's 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 market cap weighted, but we we put an eight percent limit on the largest stock. So it's you know we're not. I might look and see and observe some of these things like margins and growth rates, but we're not. You know, this isn't a traditional stock picking approach. This is buying and holding the entire emerging market sector. In my active pursuits, and when I put on my Warren Buffett hat, and I do, uh, uh, you know, look for individual stocks, I'm looking for moats. I'm looking for margins, high margins, and returns on equity and assets, and I'm looking for growth, and and I want it at a good value. Um, and so the peg ratio is the only, I, I don't care about the PE without the G. So the peg ratio is all I care about. And what I think, when I sort of try to transcribe my active investment beliefs over to the EMQQ and FMQQ, it, I think that, that, that what you've got, these platform businesses have moats and they have, you know, no, there's no official definition of moats. I think the Morningstar people have you know, made an effort to quantify the different types of moats, which I don't agree with their methodology necessarily, but the network effect is a pretty good moat, right? I mean, you and I could hire a couple of guys and start a social network tomorrow, but, you know, no one's going to go to it because all the people are already, already on a different one. So, so I think that what you really have here is a, a group of companies that collectively have very, um, a pretty strong moats, that is being reflected in margins and and ultimately returns on equity and assets and and the valuations are quite reasonable the peg ratio the pe divided by the growth rate for this group is about 0.7 which is half the peg ratio of the nasdaq and a third the peg ratio of the s p 500 so i think you've got the fastest growing sector in the world I think that collectively they have a pretty strong moat and you've got incredible growth, unprecedented. I mean, I, I really do believe this is the fastest growing sector in the world, um, not just today, but ever. I mean, the revenue growth for the sector over the last 11 years has been on average 37% a year. So, um, uh, so anyway, I think, I think that, uh, um, I think this is a, a, a group of very fast growing companies that are very, very, very reasonably priced. And I think that they have um, a pretty strong, collectively, a moat. You've made a really strong case for the future of these types of companies. I'm, I'm wondering though, looking on the other side of it, what do you see as potential risks going forward? Well, obviously the the one risk that we, well, I see going backwards <laughs> last nine months is a, is is regulatory risk. I mean, the, China dominates the EMQQ story, and and so you know any China risk is is a risk to EMQQ because it's sixty five percent Chinese internet companies, and and so I think uh, the regulatory risks are there now. I think the damage has happened to the regulatory uh, risk, and and by the way, I, I think the. The fears around China, you know, the last uh, eight or twelve weeks are way, way overdone, and and I think uh, now is a great time. I mean, you know, they taught me when I was young you're supposed to buy fear, and I have never observed as much fear around China as I've seen in the last three months, and 
when I look at the things everyone's fearful about, I don't see the reason for the fear. I don't, and, and you know, having devoted 16 years of my life to China, I feel like you know, I, I may have an edge, at least in thinking about China and how it operates. And right now, I see a lot of people that have never been to China um, running around with their hair on fire and saying China's uninvestable and you know, the Chinese government's gonna steal my money, I know it. And, uh, and I don't see that. And so I think, uh, anyway, but I think China is the biggest risk. I mean, that, that's where the exposure is. And, and you know, the, I think that the relative to that story and to the future, you know, what's happened in China with the Chinese government trying to regulate these internet companies, it's not a China thing. It's happening all over the world. And you don't have to look very far. The FANG stocks are in the newspaper every day with a fine or a lawsuit or a court case or a hearing. And, um, and so governments all over the world are grappling. I mean, these, these platform internet companies have grown so powerful, so big, become such a big part of our lives and our economies. And the, there's no way any regulators around the world have been able to keep up. And so while people might be fearful of China right now as they attempt to put in place appropriate regulations, you know, the rest of the world is going to grapple with it, too. I mean, you know, people say, oh, you know, China's uninvestable and you got to stay out of China. Well, where are you going to go? Russia, Brazil? I mean, you know, all the emerging markets are risky and the governments, uh, you know, are perhaps risky in emerging and frontier markets. Um, and regulations uh, are certain to come all over the world. So anyway, I'd say regulatory risk um slash government risk but but this is a secular story all right i've i've still i have never met somebody that used to have a smartphone and i think it's it's kind of a one directional thing you I mean these all over the world people are, are getting their that first computer and their first internet access and i don't see almost anything that can derail that i mean you might have as we just experienced you're going to have a you know, a lot of those new consumers are going to fall down the income ladder, you know, during the COVID. But but directionally, I think that this is a pretty these are three very strong megatrends and there's really not much that's going to turn them around. Um, it can slow down around the edges, but I think this is going to go on for decades. I said one more before I turn it back over to Justin. You, know, you alluded to the rapid growth of some of these technology companies. And, you know, one of the things that value investors like me have gotten wrong about this whole thing is, you know, we sort of looked at the Facebooks of the world and said, you know, as these companies scale, as they get really big, there's no way they can maintain those growth rates. You know, if you look throughout history, no growth companies have ever maintained those growth rates. And they've proved us wrong over and over again. And I'm, I'm wondering, do we have to change the way we look at growth and how much it can scale in, in sort of a world of technology? Well, I think we do. And I know, look, I mean, I think I earlier in this dialogue, I told you how I was shorting Amazon.com in 1998 and was telling everybody else to short it as well. And the company had a $1 billion market cap. And I thought, there's no way this company is going to be worth more than $200 million. And if and I shorted $50,000 worth of the stock. If I had bought that $50,000 long and just held it, it'd be worth $50 million today. So I think that... Um, People that have held on to this Graham and Dodd low price to book approach, they're not going to make money ever again, really. I mean, you can, you know, you can find cigar butts here and there, I suppose, but the real money gets made in, in growth. And the miracle of compounding is 
so important in your ultimate investment outcomes, like so, so important. And if you can grow at 30% for 10, 12 years and, and your valuations are you know, reasonable when you get in, I, I think that's how, you, that's how you make the most money. And so growth is very, very important and and the other thing about the you know value and value valuation is look we, Amazon lost money for decades right and you can say oh the PE is nine hundred or it's one hundred and seventy or whatever it is but businesses aren't approaching the world that way anymore right it's okay to lose money it's okay to not make a profit as, if you're going to grow now ultimately what gives companies value is earnings. And so ultimately you do need the E to come out, but if you want to sacrifice short-term E for long-term, you know, earnings, that's, that's become a much more acceptable business model. And so traditional valuation frameworks, I think are challenged to, to deal with that. Kevin, I know you guys just launched your um, second ETF, the next frontier internet and e-commerce ETF, which is basically, well, I'll, I'll let you talk to that. Um, that's the first thing, but the, the, the real question I wanted to ask here is, you know, you're a really great success story of a small ETF issuer. Um, and there's, uh, you know, a lot of smaller ETFs just don't get anywhere near close to the level of success that you and your firm have had. Obviously it's a great strategy. The performance has been excellent. But is there, can you pinpoint your, your firm, was there a, a point in your firm's history where you sort of had a step up in terms of, okay, we're going to go from small to big? Um, when, when you think back of the history of the ETF, was there something that really made you get that big leap? Or was it just kind of grinding it out, just churning, getting assets, getting out there, talking about it? I mean, what in your mind was sort of maybe the two or three key ingredients to um, success here? Well, I mean, I think there are two things that have led to our success. First and foremost, we have the best performing emerging markets ETF in the world since inception by far, even after a 40% decline. So that, and, and that, again, that, you know, the reason I made this product was someone said, what's the best emerging markets ETF for the next 15 years? And I, was pretty sure I, what I had thought what it could and should be. It has been at least in the first seven years. So performance is quite important. And then the other thing is this, it's a good story. I mean, it's, it's a real story. It's a good story. It's a, you know, 37% revenue growth is, you know, perhaps the fastest growing sector in the world ever. So that's good to have a good story. I've become increasingly as a business person, the value of storytelling is becoming, in my last several years, very important, I think, telling stories in the business context, which is something Kobe Bryant devoted his life to after basketball, for what it's worth. Um, and, and in terms of specific, you know, moments, I, you know, t 2017, we were number one in the country. And, and as we went up, more money came in. And I think we went from, you know, 50 million to 500 million that year. And we're the number one, you know, fund in the country. And then, or, you know, emerging market fund. And then 2018, 
uh, we had a sell-off. We had a trade war, and that was a tough year. We were down 30%. And 2019, uh, you know, wasn't much better. It didn't feel much better. We, the declines ended, but there wasn't a lot of money coming in. And then, and the trade war just was, you know, for seven quarters, that trade war was just on everybody's mind, and 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 things were sort of suppressed. But 20, coming into 2018, I was very bullish, or coming into 2019, I remember the day I got very bullish was when they started burning LeBron James jerseys in the streets of Hong Kong because uh, uh, the NBA had gotten in a little scuffle with the Chinese government about things. And so, so anyhow, I think that the, the 2017, when we went up, things went well. And then 2020, last year, obviously, you know, we went from, I think we had gone from the 2018 high, in, I think we had about 550 million. I think we declined to about 300 million by last spring. And then, of course, the COVID came, and I think valuations were already reasonable, and people, I think, rightfully saw that that all things internet and e-commerce were going to get a boost from the COVID, and and so last year we ended up uh, number one as well. So I wish. I was better at getting people to buy when things are down, but unfortunately, um, I think it's just an investor, a, a normal investor bad habit to want Mr. Market to confirm what they uh, think and they want to buy stuff that's going up. So you pay a high price for a cheer consensus and you get your best values when people are bleak and they're pretty bleak right now, at least in terms of their outlook on China. Just in terms of wrapping it up, um, we like to ask this sort of standard closing question, and it, it kind of gets to um, trying to impart like your experience and wisdom and knowledge um, to our listeners and the people that watch this. So the, the question really is, if you, could, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor out there, what would it be? Buy and hold. Miracle of compounding is very, very, very important. And it's not something I've been great personally in, in sticking with throughout my entire life, but I, I think that's the most important thing. Great. Thank you very much for joining us, Kevin. We really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.